Hi, this is Lex Frieden, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm the director at the Southeast ADA Center. And as a reminder, audience, you can submit your questions about the ADA at any time to adalive.org. Uh, I'm always pleased when I get to introduce my boss. So Peter Blank uh, will be our host for today's episode as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Uh, it's my honor and privilege, Peter, to turn it over to you to interview Lex Frieden, an American educator, researcher, disability pioneer, policy expert, and the man regarded as the architect of the ADA. So Peter, it's all yours. Well, thank you, Barry, and hi, Lex, and I would add to that introduction of Lex, a great American. Uh, if I may, Lex, uh, in my life, I've met a lot of citizens, as you have, and I have a category for great American citizens, and you're just about at the top of that list. For me, that means somebody who inspires, somebody who's focused on positive and real change, Somebody who does it so naturally and so humbly that others follow and they, they don't even think they're following sometimes. They just swept along in the magic of Lex Frieden. And, and uh, it's, it's a quite an honor and delight, Lex, to, to speak with you today. Uh, Peter, I'm glad to be here, glad to speak with you anytime. And I appreciate all the work that you've done to promote equal opportunity and advancement of rights of people with disabilities, all types of disabilities. And I think it's, a, you know, it, it, it's just history is only that which we make of it. And, and we have a short time during our lives to make a contribution to society. And I think we all do that as well as we can. Well, as you know, Lex, and coming up on the 30th anniversary, of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. We are honored to recognize that anniversary as we, honor, as we are honored to recognize you, uh, somebody who has lived prior to an ADA and now living through the ADA and all the permutations it's gone through. As everybody knows, it's quite a broad law, uh, covers most aspects, certainly maybe every aspect of American life, from education equality to physical equality to employment issues, the list goes on. And I guess, Lex, you've been interviewed many times and you've written so many things. You've written the forward to my recent book, which is an extraordinary forward about these issues. What do you think? Is there something that you would like to convey just to start that you really haven't conveyed before or is something that most of our readers would not normally be aware of in regard to the evolution of this law that came to be known as the ADA and how it has really shaped your life and shaped the lives of so many others? Well, I mean, that's a 
an open-ended question, uh, Peter, and we can time books have been written about the ABA and others need to be written. Uh, no matter how much you talk about it, there are aspects of it that that have not yet been uh, uh, exposed or discussed. And uh, I, I would say that, you know, for everybody engaged in the ABA process, all the people who who worked on ABA, all the people with disabilities who who marched, wrote letters, attended meetings, expressed themselves. Everybody has a story, and everybody's story is is important. And the ADA would not be complete uh, without those stories, some of which will probably never be told. But I, I got to tell you, people made great sacrifices to participate in the ADA process. Some of them used themselves as examples and the examples that they gave were from a life that differs from the life they would experience today. Uh, many of those who've gone before us uh, had to suffer unnecessarily simply because they happened to have a, a physical or mental impairment that prevented them from doing that which they would like to do, that which what they might have done had there been no barriers and today I think we have to reflect on that, remember that, and know that each one of those people, uh, each one of their lives made a contribution to ADA. We have to honor that by continuing to work on the ADA, by ensuring full implementation, and by making the occasional uh, updates to the ADA that are necessary to accommodate changes in society. So I, you know, the, the question that you asked would be a difficult one to answer in a short period of time. Uh, personally, my experience started when I broke my neck in a car wreck, and less than six months later, I was told by a university that because I was disabled, would not be admitted as a student trainer. Now, what happened during the six months when they wanted to give me a scholarship and, and, and were recruiting me to attend their school? and the time that they wrote and told me I would not be admitted because I had a disability. The only thing that happened in my life was I was in a car wreck. And uh, that's it, period, end of story. And yet, that episode, that, that 30 seconds, uh, with one car load of students piling into another car load on a downtown street in Stillwater, Oklahoma, affected my life dramatically. and. Uh, and to the extent that it helped me, uh, introduced me to the life of advocacy that I've lived, uh, it, it was a significant uh, moment in time. And I think we've all experienced those kind of epiphanies. We have talked about this before, and you've written about that car wreck. The first, the first part of this question maybe is um, more factual, and the second part is a little more speculative, but interesting. Uh, who was Lex Frieden before that car hit that other car? And did that Lex Frieden ever think twice about civil rights or inequalities in life at that time? I recognize you were very wrong, young at the time. And what do you think that pre-car wreck Lex Frieden would be today if it hadn't been for that car wreck? You know, I, that's a good question. I, I grew up in a small rural community in northwestern Oklahoma, and it was a homogeneous community. Um, 
as far as I know, we're no uh, black people lived in our community. Um, there were some Hispanic Latino uh, people who lived there, but we considered them to be part of the family, part of the community. They had lived there for generations. So we didn't think of them as being minorities. Uh, there were people with disabilities in the community. I had in my class, uh, all the way through uh, uh, high school, a young woman who was short stature. In fact, two of them. One of them I don't even think of today because she had a different kind of dwarfism. But uh, Andrea Markham, uh, you know, went did, did all the things everybody else did. And we wouldn't think about having an event that Andrea couldn't participate in. And uh, in other schools, maybe her short stature would have prevented her from doing things. But we simply, as a class, as a community, as a as a as a group, uh, refused to do things. We it didn't even seem natural for us to do something that she could not be involved in. But that, frankly, is the extent of my experience with disabilities when I was young, except for having old grandparents who lived in a nursing home and had help getting up and going to bed. And, you know, as I reflect here, there was a young man who grew up with us down the street when we were kids and played in the yard who, who was intellectually challenged. He was a friend and we played with him and he participated in all our neighborhood activities until we started the school and all of a sudden Roger disappeared. And nobody asked where Roger went, but later on when I was thinking about it, I asked my mother and my mother was a little shy about describing uh, Roger's disappearance and, and I continued to press and finally my mother explained to me that Roger had learning challenges and that he was not able to attend the school with the rest of us and therefore had been sent to a special school somewhere far away. And we never knew what happened to Roger. Uh, we didn't miss him long because there were obviously other kids and other things to do. But that, you know, until I think about it now, and I have thought about it a few times in the past, uh, people with disabilities were treated. They were treated the way they were treated. They were, uh, people thought they were doing the right thing when they gave treatment. And, uh, and those uh, solutions occurred, but they were not uh, really supportive of the individuals with disabilities. There was a visually impaired man that lived in my community, and he sat down on the sidewalk outside the TGNY store with a cup. And I observed when I was down there one summer day that nobody put any money in the cup. And I thought, so, you know, what's Jim's purpose here? with his cup on the sidewalk. I also observed that people would stop and chat with Jim. And it occurred to Jim's objective here is not to collect money, but instead have a conversation with somebody to be social. And, uh, and so one day I went and spoke to Jim and he was a conversant gentleman. And, and I asked him about his cup and he sat it down. He said, oh, that, he said, that's, that's just uh, to, to uh, it's a conversation starter, he said. And uh, so, you know, I had some experience with disability. I didn't think about it much. I didn't uh, 
you know, didn't consider myself to be an advocate, despite the fact that I spent time with other people who had disabilities. When I, when I was told by the university I couldn't go to school there, the first thing I tried to think of is why not? You know, is there a precedent for that? And it occurred to me that the precedent probably lay in the treatment of people who were black in the South. And, uh, and I had grown up during a time that, you know, in the 1960s when there were protesters, people still protesting uh, segregation and people who were protesting the war in Vietnam and people who were protesting the treatment of women. And, and uh, so that was the background when many of us who were disability advocates grew up, that framework of uh, speaking out. And, and I adopted that, uh, that perspective growing up and, and I think naturally applied it to my own experience with disability discrimination. My favorite movie is It's a Wonderful Life, which of course many of us know as a, as a theme about, we really don't know how many lives we touch in small ways, whether it's Roger in your hometown or the person who is blind with the cup. And we often think, as George Bailey did in It's a Wonderful Life, what would I have been, Lex Frieden, had I not been in that car on that day? Do you ever think about that from that perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody who is who experiences a traumatic uh, disability like mine probably thinks about that. I don't spend a lot of time, I mean, I haven't thought about it in years. I used to when I was feeling depressed, think about uh, what life might have been otherwise. It, and uh, and it, it's hard to imagine, uh, frankly, I, I was interested in radio and television. I was interested in law. My mother named me Lex, which as you know, is Latin for law. I thought I was uh, destined to become a, an orator. And uh, I, I was, uh, uh, interested in electronics and, and uh, engineering, and I, you know, I had many, many interests. When I started college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. When they told me I needed to have a degree plan, I told them my my plan was to go to college until I found something I liked to do and something I could get paid for. But I really wasn't even concerned about that because. Growing up, I had done many, many jobs and been paid for all of them in my little town. I changed tires for cars. I worked at the radio station. I flipped uh, eggs in a diner. I, you know, I did yards, cleaned cemeteries, uh, lifeguarded at the pool. One advantage of growing up in a little town like that is that uh, if you want to try something you usually can find an opportunity to do that and I like trying everything so I have no idea what I would have been or done had I not met my destiny in uh, advocacy and I suppose there wasn't another track I mean I did what I was supposed to do I did what uh, what nature led me to do and that's kind of why I'm here today I actually thought of that also from a selfish point of view on what a wonderful life you have and you created and, and what our world would be like without that incident you experienced. It would be potentially a Pottersville 
in which, um, if you know the movie, is a much darker society than what they would have experienced, you know, had he lived. What do you think of today, Lex, at this very moment, the young college student who's going to get in that car accident and break his or her neck? And what is that person going to face today, which is obvious to you and me and on many dimensions because we work in that area. But, but what do you think our, a listener who is in that car accident at this moment, what do they have to look forward to? Regardless of how good a care somebody gets, they still have to make an adjustment to disability. People have to make an adjustment. And frankly, I don't think everyone makes the same kind of adjustment. And even given ADA, I don't think people are able to compare. So when they, when somebody gets hurt, regardless of status of the society is, they have to make an adjustment. They have to find themselves in a new life and they have to make themselves comfortable and productive in that life. Now, I believe when you discover that you have a disability, that you are different in material ways from other people, you must put that into your personal set personal view of yourself and you have to define yourself in those terms in the context of the larger society and I don't think that's any easier to do today than it was now the adjustment eventually may be easier because we have the ADA and because there are provisions for non-discrimination but I think the adjustment is still a challenge to anyone who discovers they have a disability and they try to adopt that persona into their view of self and to their view of themselves in the larger world. What's the work that has to be done by this new generation of advocates and leaders? Are young folks picking up that leadership and what do they really need to do to move this forward? Seeing the example, we're living the example right now in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing. People around the world are becoming familiar with the reality of discrimination on the basis of skin color. You know, they're responding to that, and the society is learning from that, and some people are changing their attitudes, and we're doing the necessary things that are fundamentally uh, important to changing the framework and the way we treat people. And people with disabilities have to lead the same kind of movement. Maybe not, hopefully not, over the death of a, uh, of a member of our community, but maybe it will be over the unnecessary death of a person with a disability. That occurs frequently, and it occurs by suicide and in people who are with disabilities, living at home, trying to manage their own lives, and they are killed by their caregivers. And it only happens because the society allows it. So we have to fundamentally change and continue to change the views of people about those of us with disabilities. People with disabilities, I think, are still not considered part of the mainstream, the normal mainstream. There are too many episodes where somebody plans a meeting and, and, and doesn't consider people with disabilities in the planning. They don't plan to include interpreters. They don't think about an interpreter for a deaf person unless a deaf person says, hey, wait a minute, I want to come to your meeting. Please accommodate me. 
they shouldn't have to do that. That should be normal. That should be the, the way things are anyway. You know, we have a lot of, lot of things that can be done for advocates of today, and they need to understand and take control of that. That's the way we move forward. We just keep helping society to adjust to the reality of disability. Now, we, we, of course, would be naive not to consider the elephant in the room, and that is the, the present global health and economic emergency from the pandemic, COVID-19. That's an overlay on top of, of all this. How are we going to come out of this from a disability community perspective, or how is this impacting the progress you were just talking about? Well, I, and more than anything, I think it magnifies some of the... Uh, some of the differences that still exist and some of the challenges that we have. But I do believe that there will be opportunity here. In other words, we've been using telemedicine now more than ever before. Telemedicine for a long time has been the solution to uh, improved healthcare for people with disabilities. And yet the rules at the state and federal level have prevented effective utilization of telemedicine. Now, because we have the examples that have been provided through COVID, and because of COVID, I believe telemedicine can be effectively extended to populations that before have not had good access to healthcare. I think people with mental illness who had difficulty seeing physicians, I think people in rural areas who had difficulty seeing physicians, I think people with mobility impairments who have difficulty getting health care. I think all of those people will benefit from the telemedical changes that have been made during the COVID. But we've also seen rationing, rationing of supplies, rationing of uh, ventilators, rationing of medicine. And some of that rationing has been focused on value-laden decisions about the uh, the nature of the people who receive uh, limited supplies. And that, I think, again, points to our kind of societal de-emphasis or even devaluing uh, people with disabilities. You know, uh, your points are very well taken. Literally a month or so before the pandemic, I was arguing, working on a case involving telework as an accommodation for a woman with a disability and the employer was pushing back on remote work. And now, as you say, the new norm is telework and a big questioning of commercial real estate, which might be another area you've, you've thought about as well as uh, telehealth, of course. Telework is only part of the solution there. I think we can still see the prospects of discrimination until we have tele-interviews without uh, video, tele-interviews with uh, artificial speech. I mean, the, the people will still uh, discriminate uh, based on their values of appearance, whether that person's going to be working at home or not. I mean, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of, uh, of the decisions that some employers make about whom to hire. And uh, I've seen too many examples of, uh, of discrimination based on disability that may not even be 
acknowledged or understood by the person who is making the, the value-laden decision of whom to hire. Uh, we have too many examples in the disparities of uh, employment, uh, Peter, where you know an employer can get down to three final candidates, two of the three will not be disabled, one will be, and the odds are greater than two and three that one of the non-disabled people will be selected for the job. And statistically, it should come out one in three. If you were basing it strictly on a statistical uh, framework, but it's not. It's less than one in three who wind up in the finals getting employed. So there's still something subconsciously at work uh, when it comes to employment of people with disabilities. And I think we have to figure that out and stop doing it. You know, of course, as you are aware, we had a monumental Supreme Court decision this week under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which now bans job discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's quite a long decision, but if you read that decision, one of the rationales that the majority used in um, upholding that and making that decision was an analogy to the Americans with Disabilities Act in that uh, when the act was passed, it really wasn't contemplated that prisons would be covered under the law, and yet there was a 9-0 decision called Yeski, which you're familiar with, um, which interpreted the law reasonably that way. And it, it was very interesting to me that um, the majority would particularly use that example of the ADA in support of that decision, which was very encouraging to me. I don't know if you've had a chance to think about that or look at that decision at all. No, I have not seen that, Peter. That's interesting. And I'm, you know, I think it's important that the ADA is used that way as a, a reference and a precedent. Let me just add, the new generation needs to be far more integrated than the generation we have working on it now. People of color, people other disabilities, people who have gender differences, uh, we need to stretch we need to find ways of promoting uh, integration. We need to do that effectively and not just talk about it. And we need to be met. We need to be met by people who want to adopt the disability movement. And those people should be of every persuasion. And until that happens, you know, we're, we're not going to make great deal of additional progress, I don't think. So it's incumbent on us to be awake and to reach out and to provide every opportunity for people to, to be embraced by the movement. And uh, that is our current challenge. If we don't meet that challenge, the disability movement is apt to die. That last point is very important. I know for my colleagues and myself, we are working hard on this concept of intersectionality or multiple minority identities uh, that people experience, whether it's disability and race or gender or sexual orientation. And it does seem that um, this non-monochromatic view of disability may be the wave of the future, particularly in light of what you talked about earlier in terms of the Black Lives Matter and the Me Too movements as well. I never think I could learn anything more from, from you, but every time 
we talk or meet, I do. It's really inspirational to talk with you. We have had a, a full and really appropriate and timely talk. Is there something about what you'd like to do next in your life or what, what challenges you'd like to devote your time to that you would like to leave us with or um, the sort of things that you're working on now that are particularly important? I'm currently interested in healthcare reform as it relates to people with disabilities. I'm, I'm very sorry that the, uh, some of the provisions in the Affordable Care Act have been uh, set aside and I think they need to be reinstated, those that affect people with disabilities, and ensure good health care. I think that uh, we need to continue to work on integrating our movement. I think we need to look at uh, making the uh, regulation stronger as it relates to the virtual world. I'm interested in learning more about the disparities that we face in terms of getting people out of institutions and into the community, and I think it's very important for us as a society to establish a perspective of older adults and people with disabilities that place them in the community, aging in place, that enable them to live in their own homes and be as independent as they can be, giving them the supports and services they needed in the home so that they can be active throughout their lives. As we're closing today and celebrating the ADA anniversary, the ADA National Network, Lex, is asking everyone, people like yourself, to share a hashtag thanks to the ADA moment of what the ADA means to you, a moment in your life when you were thankful for the ADA. Lex, may I ask you, what is your thanks to the ADA moment? My thanks for the ADA moment was the first breath I took when I woke up this morning. Every day in my life as a result of the ADA is better. It gives me the opportunity to go outside my home, use a public transit like everybody else in my neighborhood and my community. It gives me the opportunity to go to my favorite restaurant, to find my way from the restaurant into the bathroom, use the accessible toilet facilities, gives me an opportunity to go to my work and to be there with my colleagues in my office, to be able to use the building, the facilities, and to be able to communicate with all my colleagues, some of whom are deaf, some of whom are, are visually impaired, some of whom have intellectual impairments, and others who have different types of disabilities. The ADA gives me an opportunity to be me. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Lex. And I'm, I'm getting hungry because my wish is that someday soon we're going to break bread at your favorite restaurant in Houston and, and have a meal, share a meal face to face. So be well, dear friend, and I hope we'll see you soon. All right. Thanks, Peter. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. ADA Live listeners, thank you for joining us for today's episode. We are so very grateful to have as guests today uh, Lex Frieden and Dr. Peter Blank. Uh, sharing about the ADA as we celebrate the 30th anniversary of the signing of the law. As a reminder, um, Dr. Blank has a new book titled Disability Law and Policy with a foreword by Lex Frieden. Uh, and the book was released in honor of the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. 
Disability law and policy is a compelling compendium of stories about how our legal system has responded to the needs of people whose lives are impacted by disability. Disability Law and Policy is published by Foundation Press and is available for pre-order from West Academic, that's W-E-S-T academic.com. And as a reminder, uh, if you have questions or comments about this podcast, uh, you can submit them at adalive.org. You can access all ADA Live episodes on our website, adalive.org. Every episode is archived with streamed audio, accessible transcript, and resources. Listen to the SoundCloud ADA Live channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. You can download ADA Live on your mobile device. Uh, just go to the podcast, outco- uh, podcast icon and search for ADA Live. We encourage you to celebrate, learn, and share about the 30th anniversary of the ADA on July 26, 2020, and throughout the year. Check out the ADA Anniversary Toolkit at adaanniversary.org. The toolkit is a product of the Southeast ADA Center and the ADA National Network. It features logos, social media posts, monthly themes, and other resources to keep the celebration going. Also, on a social media platform of your choosing, please go to please use hashtag thanks to the ADA to share what the ADA means to you, that moment in your life when you were thankful for the ADA. So you could share at by using the hashtag. Hashtag thanks to the ADA. Reminder, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can submit them at any time at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And remember, those calls are always free and confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Beth Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marsha Schwanke, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. We'll see you next episode. Everybody be safe. Thanks.